the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And on this rather chilly day of December 10th, 2018, we have gathered together, you and I, for hopefully two hours of memorable conversation and uh, dialogue around the matters that uh, are important to you and and, and me. Um, Here we are again, uh, by God's mercy, ready to talk about these issues, um, those issues, that issue, whatever it may be, again, um, that would bolster our faith, bolster our hope, bolster our um, strength in the Lord, and I want to welcome you to the Monday edition of Lifeline, your host, Jesse Gistan. And as I stated, it is a bit chilly out, and so you want to be careful about this time of the year. Let me quickly give you the number. Uh, if you have a question or a comment or an observation you want to make, um, particularly if you've been tracking with me for some months and uh, maybe there's a topic that we have addressed in the past that you might want to bring to the table or you've got an urgent question yourself that you might want to pose uh, and we can talk about it as well on this coveted constitutional right that we have for freedom of speech and therefore public dialogue that allows us to investigate together topics and issues. The number here is one triple eight. Three six seven five three two nine one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I hope you're hungry. I hope you are thoughtful. I hope you are reflective and um, ready to engage. Hungry in your soul for a better, a better understanding, perhaps of of where you are in your walk with God. A better understanding of the world that you are in. A better understanding, maybe, of your calling. Um. There are a lot of reasons for which you and I should be striving for more, striving for better, striving to grow and striving to mature, truth be told. And I hope that uh, providence and the power of God and the person and work of Christ is is actually stirring in your soul even now, just stirring in your soul a hunger uh, and thirst for righteousness um, so that you can be more productive in your life. I think about this frequently, you guys. I think about... How privileged one uh, might be, such as you and I, to wake up every day and uh, have the option, not just the uh, privilege, but the option of uh, doing something that has eternal value, eternal benefit. Even if it seems mundane and temporal, it really does ultimately, if we're doing it unto the Lord, that's first Corinthians chapter 1031 would say, whatever you do, do do as unto the Lord. And uh, we would want to be able to think about how might my day today be more than simply a mundane day of temporal activities, either in the context of my communion with God, which I think is important, 
Um, how do we, in a secular world, with all of the crazy that our secular world brings to our consciousness uh, via um, uh, the closeness of proximity that we have with it in terms of technology and just the exposure of the the world as we live in a first first world context. How does the believer live in this present world context on a daily basis uh, with a vital and healthy communion with God? How do we maintain a, a, a passionate trajectory of thought, a consistent, linear, uh, vertical uh, a vital connection with God, given the challenges that we deal with every day. I mean, I mean, for real. I'm, 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 I'm saying I believe that this is an, a salient concern that we all should have, since the Bible does warn us about secularism. It does warn us about worldliness, and it does warn us about carnality. How do we live in the world? But not be of it. How do we insulate and not isolate ourselves from the world? It's a very good question. One I am challenged with every day when I think about how I have to navigate this and navigate that and make decisions here, make decisions there. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine is the number here. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine thinking about how we might uh, strengthen our communion and fellowship with God. I mean, on a very uh, dynamic level, it's going to determine how we make choices. I think you would agree with that. Then on the other hand, I would ask the question, how do we deal with some of the uh, uninvited challenges that our life seems to frequently be interrupted by? Challenges that interrupt us, uh, difficulties that might come our way. Uh, uninvited uh, struggles, uninvited obstacles, uninvited challenges that come our way on a daily basis, whether they be uh, of the physical nature, physical illnesses, things of that nature, domestic nature, relationships within the context of marriage or what have you, or uh, spiritual matters that might have to do with where I am in my walk with God. Uh, or even on an ecclesiastical level, relationships with people in the church. The believer is constantly bombarded by all of these kinds of things, one way or the other. And and the question is, how do you fare in these matters? Again, the number being one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. We're moving towards the end of the year, and you know what I do? I I really do press um, my audience as well as the congregation that I pastor, to finish the year well, to try to close out the year in a way that uh, is honorable to God. We have been working through First Peter 2.17 at Grace as our New Year's theme, um, our year's theme, that is. Um, honor all men, love the brethren, fear uh, God, and honor the king, First Peter 2.17. And striving to be honorable is a, is a challenge in itself. Um, especially when you're being confronted with dishonorable events, dishonorable maybe people, dishonorable circumstances. How does a brother or sister remain honorable in their conduct, thinking words and actions in a context where dishonor seems to be a prevalent, prevalent, prevalent uh, reality in our lives? On the other hand, I was thinking more broadly about an hour ago before coming into the studio thinking more broadly about our world. I don't know about you, but I I keep my eyes open. I do what first what Ephesians 5 says around verse 
15, 16, 17, be circumspect for the days are evil. Um, therefore, redeem the time. Uh, and, and I really do assess what's going on in my world. And I think about where we are in our present time on a pro- prophetic level. Uh, presently, our, our country and our nation is in a tizzy, if you will, in terms of its identity, in terms of its purpose, in terms of its goals, in terms of its expressions. I mean, you know, well, let me put it this way. What would be bothering you about your country right now as well? Because it's our country. We're part of the world. Um, and we could if we wanted to opt out and not care about it. But that's not what Christ called us to do. He didn't call us not to care about the world. And so we have to think through how can we um, uh, negotiate our world uh, in the context in which our world is expressing itself. I'm going to share with you a number of things uh, that basically was sort of uh, stimulated by our Lord's uh, Mount Olivet Discourse, where he said, you know, in the latter days, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Wars, rumors of wars, uh, pestilences and famines and and uh, tumults of all kinds. Uh, men at war with one another, uh, even on the micro level of families and then on the larger macro level of governments. This is where we are today. Our Lord didn't get into the signs and wonders specifically. He said that would be coming upon the earth that would cause the hearts of men to fail, according to the book of Luke, chapter 19 through 21. But I can tell you when I when I look at that text and I think about where you and I are today, some of the things that are amazing to me is the transformational dynamics, transformational dynamics of information, the transformational dynamics of information that is presently shaping our world, shaping the narrative of our world, shaping the trajectory of people's opinions and thoughts, the transformational narrative of deconstructionism. If you know anything about that, if you've been in, been in college for the last couple, two or three, four, five, ten years, you know deconstructionism is basically reassessing how history has been written and declared and going back and taking it apart and, and um, doing some revising. And over the last 20, 30 years, maybe a little bit more, deconstructionism has, uh, on the historical revisionist level, uh, been a major impact in changing people's views about things like holidays and and uh, special events, whether they are secular or sacred. Uh, deconstructionism has opened the door and unearthed a lot of facts and arguments about American and European history, as you guys know, so that we don't we don't we don't we no longer can easily engage in the uh, observation and practice of holidays undiscerningly, knowing that behind a lot of the holidays that have existed in our nation where we have uh, lauded men for their services have had a lot of dirt behind it that requires some answers. That's what deconstructionism does as it unearths a lot of facts and arguments. And what that does is it creates tensions in, in communities. It creates conflicts in, 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 in families. It creates conflicts on jobs. You can't, you no longer just say, let's celebrate, you know, uh, Columbus Day or let's celebrate, you know, Washington Day. Let's celebrate even J, uh, MLK, Martin Luther King, uh, just recently within the framework of the church. Big battle uh, again around, um, you know, how do uh, how do uh, Christians in the context of black people and white people uh, engage in a civil way and in a res- respectful and biblical way? The acknowledgement of Martin Luther King, given all of the dubiousness of his life as well, particularly on a theological level, if not on a moral level. 
just observing a, 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 a very heated and passionate discourse on the part of one African-American young preacher who um, is advocating for maintaining, you know, a, a healthy and robust acknowledgement of King, uh, you know, because of all of his contributions towards the freedoms that we are now presently experiencing. And to a large degree, I was able to concede that it is important that one recognize the contributions that have led to the blessings and freedoms that we have without compromising on the fact that there have been a number of things that have been unearthed concerning Mr. King that are worth uh, having a dialogue and conversation about, particularly on a theological level. Since for uh, the believer, theology is extremely important. You and I can't just have fellowship. I mean, just have fellowship with a disregard for what we call the truth of God, the depository truth of Scripture. We've got to be able to talk about things. And then when we discover history may have uh, had its own uh, faulty and erroneous impact on the church, we have to be willing to own that and deal with that, too. That's just what we do. Adjustments are always made throughout history uh, where we are in pursuit of the truth, and that can be challenging. Postmodernism. We are in a postmodern age, no doubt about it. This year is now being sold at lock, stock, and barrel in our schools, particularly around the gender issues, as you know. Uh, it's almost at the point of uh, a legal reinforcement that when a person self-defines, when they go to talking about I'm a he, when in fact biologically and on all empirical evidence they are a she, if you don't call them a he or a she as they wish, uh, there could be legal reprisal. It's going on in different countries now. That's a huge problem. Foisting upon the world a whole new, more emotionally driven, psychologically driven paradigm of self-expression versus a biological one. That's a huge battle going on in the world today. Um and and I don't know if it's going to be uh, resolved really quickly. I, I I was thinking about one day one day I'll go to Target, right? And this is experiential that I'm sharing with you. One day I go to Target in a particular city, and the bathrooms are um you know uh, gender friendly, uh, both male and female or other, et cetera, on the doors. Then I go to Target in another city. I won't name the city. And then you got one male bathroom and one female bathroom. Okay. So apparently the target policy is that some of the stores can do what they believe is best given the the environment in which they are operating um, to make sure that they please their customers. Well, yeah, but it's truth, really, the issue of or consequent of pleasing somebody. Is the uh, pan-gendered bathroom in a particular city versus the uh, bi-gendered bathrooms in another city which one's the truth? Who's lying? Now, they both can't be true. Now, you know that. They can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. The law of non-contradiction won't have it. So here we are. In some spaces, it's not being tolerated. In other spaces, it is being tolerated. You know how difficult that's going to be for your children growing up when in some spaces it's pan-gendered in other spaces it's bi-gendered? Bi- Binary gendered, as it has been historically. And some books is going to be very clearly he, she, compatible to the biological uh, factors uh, of that person's existence in that body. In other books and curriculum, it's going to be all over the place. 
Do you understand how that's going to impact the culture ultimately? And what does that do for unity? And what does that do for coherence? What does that do for reason and clarity? It's a problem. So our culture is dealing with uh, the gender spectrum issue. It's dealing with growing economic gaps. The corruption in our government is massive. I mean, you know, a bunch of people voted for Donald Trump last year and were all happy with him. But uh, now the iceberg is starting, uh, the tip of the iceberg is starting to crack through the water. Apparently, Donald Trump is in some real trouble with his dubious relationships um, with Russia and, and, and different individuals going way back before his presidency, but uh, apparently seeping into his presidency, too. But this is not new, is it? Almost every president we have is under investigation with the potential for impeaching him for this, that, or the other. That's what we do in our world, don't we? Now, now it becomes sad when Christians start to identify and cast their hope upon or make their confidence rooted in a political party because there's none righteous, no, not one. So if Donald Trump should ultimately be uh, condemned for and made guilty of and proven faulty for actually having relationships with Russia prior to his uh, run for presidency and, and even into his presidency and that there was collusion and all of that for which the right is ferociously def- defending him. then yeah, we're going to have some problems in a year or two. And then to boot the growing divisions in the church over uh, many uh, of the above issues, in fact, that we're talking about. Uh, and then don't let's not forget homelessness. We're dealing with a lot of homelessness. Now, why am I sharing this with you on a, on a Monday, two weeks before uh, Christmas? Well, because I really do think that you and I need to have a grown-up Christmas this time. Let's talk about a grown-up Christmas today, okay? Not your, um, you know... Uh, your 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 ancient white Christmas. Let's have a white Christmas where the snow is coming down and the picket fence and all. Of, oh, let's have a grown up Christmas today. Can we do that? I want to hear from you. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Let's have a grown up Christian Christmas where we can talk about the Savior, but do it in the context of the issues and the challenges and the struggles that we all may be having in our family, in our personal life, in our church life, in our nation, in our job, in our country. One triple eight. Three six seven five three two nine, an hour and a half to have a grown-up conversation about Christmas with your host Jesse Giston. I'm going to take a break, and I'll take your calls on the Monday edition of Lifeline after this. And we are back. The time five twenty-six, which yours truly, Jesse Giston. Um, enjoying just kind of reflecting with you and uh, opening the phone lines for you. Give me a call one triple eight. Three six seven five three two nine. We are moving close to our um, beloved uh, season and celebration of our Savior's birth. And uh, every year, as I move towards the end of the year, I do try to cudgel you. I try to provoke you in a, in a good sense, um, evoke also um, a, a sense of gratitude for having reached the end of the year, and uh, and maybe a sense of purpose in preparation for the new year. Um, be something that we should all do as as believers. Years ago, the church held a high view of the consummation of a a 12-month period so that the congregation came together at the end of the year, uh, celebrated the coming in of the new year, and then that first new year week, um, the preaching was uh, high and lofty preaching, 
about how to approach the following year as a body of believers. And I hope that that is what occurs in your own local congregations uh, every year, because it really is the mercy of God for us to be able to see another year. I, I pinch myself personally when I think about the fact that I have made it to the year uh, 2018, 58 years old, uh, knowing very well, uh, which has been part of my testimony over the years, that I could have died early on many occasions for many reasons um, due to my own youthful foolishness in the context in which I grew up. And here I am, 58 years old, uh, serving God and God, you know, using me in a significant way. I just live in, in the bounty of gratefulness and thankfulness for it because it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, in addition to that, over the years recently, I have buried a lot of friends who are my peers and, and brothers and sisters in Christ who are my age and younger. And I go, you know, any of us can go at any time without a doubt. And here we are. Uh, breathing and living and having our being by the grace of God for another year. And so I do really want to help you to think, you know, think right about it. I've got two lines open, one 367 5329 I'm basically calling your attention to a grown-up Christmas where um, we don't have to dream of a white Christmas. We don't have to dream of snow. Um, if you have snow, great. Um, but I'm talking about just keeping it real. If you read the biblical narrative concerning the birth of Christ, and this is where faithful expository preaching um, mandates our looking at the incarnation of the son of God in a much more raw, uh, historically uh, nakedly challenging context. The Lord Jesus Christ was brought into the world as the epitome and personification of Christmas in the most challenging, trying, difficult fall, snow-ridden uh, area, uh, if, if if some of the facts are true concerning the time of his birth, um, September, October, November, more like October, uh, August, September, October of the year, not December. Um, and therefore, it was cold and inconvenient for mom and, and dad, uh, his stepfather, Joseph, and just a difficult time all around with uh, some of the maniacal rulers like Herod Antipas and, and other just crazy things going on. As Jeremiah put it in Jeremiah 31, um, a, a time of great moaning and lamentation for um, for Rachel, that is national Israel. Our Savior was born in very difficult times. We're going to be talking about that on um, December 23rd for our Christmas message. And he shall be called a Nazarene. It's my topic. Or I'll be dealing with Isaiah chapter 9. It all depends. I think I'm going to deal with Isaiah 9 on Christmas and start this week with he shall be called a Nazarene. In any event, the coming of our Savior was into a world where folk had to be grown up to deal with his coming and deal with the struggles he had to deal with in order to see reality uh, in the issues that you and I are dealing with. And that's kind of what I'm getting at today. With all the crazy going on, deconstructionism, historical revisionism, unearthing the arguments of American and European history, uh, pulling back the veil on on false narratives, postmodern thinking with um, this kind of feeling oriented self-defining for which if you don't agree with the person's own self-defining, it could reach legal uh, recrimination and punitive damages, a growing economic gap that is creating homelessness everywhere. And I know you see it. It's everywhere in the Bay Area. You know it everywhere. Um, 
and then the destabilization that that occurs as just common parlance in uh, in Washington. Uh, so yeah, and then the growing divisions in our churches. They're they're there. I think I told you last week, uh, 200 churches, 150 to 200 churches collapse every week. Why? Because we are gradually and slowly moving into the dark age of a uh, pseudo-Christian, anti-Christian, post-Christian era, as the Bible predicts would occur after a period of time. We go into that ebb, that dark place. And how do we as true believers handle it? Do we handle it? Uh, uh, from a richly biblical perspective and know how to adjust in order to maintain insulation of our soul and not isolation of our life so that we are yet productive in our relationship uh, with men and women in our world? Um, or, or, or do we find ourselves struggling with depression, struggling with um, anxiety, struggling with direction? And that might be your case. I've got two lines open. Are you, as you're headed to this Christmas season, struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, struggling with direction. Um, This is what we call grown-up Christianity. Uh, So let's deal with some grown-up Christmas. I've got two lines open, 1-888-367-5329, 1-888-367-5329. I've got a lot to talk to you about over the two hours, so if you don't want to call, that's all right. I can... I can keep talking because I really do have, I do think all the time about how to encourage the people of God to not be trapped by this dark world system. So before we go to the break, I'm going to go line one and talk with Ken on line one. Ken, what's your question, comment, or thought today, sir? Hi, Pastor. So um, I'm thinking about, I know it's Christmas season, but we had uh, a terrible tragedy or several tragedies occur in terms of fires during the October, November period, and um, I'm wondering whether uh, the uh, whole um, situation is is possibly uh, not entirely a natural phenomenon, as I brought up before. That there is this, you know, there's a there, there is existing technology for which for um, altering the weather, uh, and it's called the harp. Yeah, well, you and you and I have talked about that before. That 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 is not a myth. It is not uh, some fringe kooky, um, as some would quickly want to wipe it off as fringe kooky conspiracy theorist uh, mythology. It is factual that there is a harp system out there. It is factual that our government has been striving to manipulate the weather, albeit in their um, in their own self-justification, they would say that it's designed for good things. And, and I, I would accept that as an, a basic premise for conversation. But you and I know that good technology can easily be designed for bad things. And particularly, and I'll let you, I'll let you respond after this, because I'm just kind of beginning to answer your question. Um, If we have technology that can either accelerate or initiate, if not both, catastrophe in our world, uh, does that not play a role economically? Yes, immediately. I say it affects the stock market. It it, it drives uh, sales. It drives business down or up. It it creates scenarios where uh, the capitalist uh, uh, um, robber barons have the ability to manipulate uh, the economic conditions around the world, without a doubt. And then it also has a larger uh, psychological effects upon society and many different things that can come out of being able to control the weather. And since that potential is there, 
your question is answered in the affirmative. It certainly could be that. Right. So if it is, then uh, if there's some rogue agency, let's just put it bluntly, if some rogue agency is doing it, they're guilty of, uh, you know, like a vast crime against humanity. I mean, people, many people have perished because of this enormous property destruction. And nobody, you know, the, the, the church is, is, with present company accepted, is not saying much about it. And the, certainly the media are not saying anything about it, the conventional media. So that's the kind of thing I, you know, I wonder about this Christmas season. Right. Okay. In terms, let's see if we can make a connection before I, I let you go. We saw the fires. I made mention of this in my preaching this Sunday, the uh, blessing of being able to breathe clear out right now, but also the warning that um, that could happen. We could be right back in the midst of uh, unhealthy air to the point of toxation and, and sickness and even death. Um, sadly, sadly, I, we lost a dear, beloved sister in the faith. Uh, during that time, because she was older and she had asthma and the asthma, I mean, the air actually affected and triggered her asthma. And, and she she ended up perishing as a consequence of it. So there was a there was indeed a correlation uh, uh, to that extent. And so, you know, your, your concern, uh, even though I'm giving you an anecdotal story, is is merited is merited that if we can do it on a small scale. And then maybe do it on a larger scale, what kind of collateral damage it may have very much is something we have to be careful about. And I think it should be investigated. The church should trigger the—nobody else is going to do it. The church should trigger the investigation. It's not the only negative use of technology. We have the the NSA stuff revealed by Edward Snowden. And just the use of voice recognition technology, that's incredibly advanced stuff. And that could be used negatively. The Bible um, in Revelation mentions a a particular— uh, I don't know the exact quote, but we're uh, actually... I know, I know all the quotes. I know all yeah. the quotes, but we would have to have that conversation in the new year. I might, I, I might, Ken, I might would entertain that conversation if we could frame it in a way where we are not simply uh, jumping to conclusions based upon a kind of unreasonable fear. I do not mind talking about the deviant nature of the beast system. This is Revelation chapter uh, 12 and 13, two beasts, one political, one religious, and the political beast definitely does signs and wonders to cause men and women to bow down to worship the beast, and we are moving into some some technologically deviant and and diabolical and very, 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 we would call it in the Christian paradigm, demonically controlled systems. I talked about this uh, uh, a little while ago, maybe about a month ago, concerning Prometheus, the, uh, the the capacity for us to not only do face recognition, voice recognition, but databasing everybody on the planet at such levels that fundamentally uh, privacy is altogether passe. I got that. We've got to have that conversation at some point in the future. But I will want to do it in the future, and I hope you're around for that conversation, Ken, uh, in a way that actually keeps our feet on the ground and makes sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that we have a sovereign God in control of it all, and that ultimately, if you are in Christ, you really do know Christ and are walking with Christ, know 
weapon formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you will condemn because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We must look at this Antichrist system through the prism of a conquest already achieved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thus, we are maintaining a gospel narrative in our conversation around it. So I look forward to talking to you about it in the future. Two lines open, one 367 I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. Indeed, we are. Two lines open, one 367 Two lines open, one 367 We are talking about Grown Folks Christmas. King called in about his concern about what's going on in our ecology, what's going on in our nation, what's going on with our technology. Uh, They are not totally incongruent. Um, And so if you want to call in and you got a challenge, you got a struggle, let me know. Uh, Or you got a concern, just let me know. 1-888-367-5329. Let me go to line number three and talk to Marcia in Los Gatos. Marcia, are you there? Yes, it's Marcia. I'm sorry, Marcia. How are you? I am good. Good. What's your question, comment, or observation? Well, I guess an adult question would be that we, I hear that Elizabeth, um, John the Baptist's mother, mm-hmm. and also Mary, mm-hmm. um, had interesting pregnancies, and they're sisters. That means that they're cousins. John and Jesus would be cousins. Correct. And um, then Jesus would have been influenced by Zachariah. Hypothetically, for sure. Uh, possibly, mm-hmm. who was a, a, you know, he was a teacher mm-hmm. of, of the of the the Torah. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we don't often hear about the fact that Elizabeth and Mary. We're sisters. They're actually cousins. However, when you use the term sister or brother from a biblical standpoint, and people often miss this, is that when the Bible uses the word sister, it could be a cousin. Largely, though, because the word sisters are used very sparsely in the Bible, it's generally uh, brothers um, or sons and daughters. There can be the, the word son can be used in a first generation, second generation, third generation, and even larger than that. For in the genealogies of Christ in Matthew and in, and in uh, Luke, you will have the term Jesus, uh, the son of David. And yet he's, you know, 14 generations removed from David as being his direct uh, lineage or David, the son of Abraham and Abraham, the son of Adam. So we, we have to be able to know how to use the language. And, and what I would assert is that Elizabeth and Mary were not direct blood sisters, but cousins, as you rightly stated, which made Jesus and John the Baptist uh, close cousins who were probably playmates yeah, in their that's youth. That's what I wanted to know. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's a fascinating it's a fascinating consideration. Uh and then uh, and then perhaps um either uncle or um uh older cousin uh both Elizabeth as well as Zechariah um were would have been he was a teaching priest. That means he knew Torah very well and of course uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, she was pious, so she would have known the scriptures also. 
that would have been for us as maybe flies on the wall, some rich, rich, rich dialogue and conversation uh, in terms of how family interact around these phenomenally uh, interventional expressions of God's power. Because Elizabeth was barren, as you know, she was older and she was barren. So a miracle took place there. And then the quintessential miracle took place in the conception of Christ overshadowing Mary with the, by the spirit of God. And so can you imagine what kind of conversations they were having about how everybody else were trying to figure out how this could be, you know, I mean, can you imagine that just what, and this is also what I was talking about Christmas. Yeah. I think that that's Marsha, a grown up conversation to have, uh, a woman who may have been uh, past child rearing or child birthing age and a young virgin whose um, conception was quite controversial. If anybody could do the numbers and recognize that she was well into her pregnancy when Joseph married her. Uh, and yet they were both um, holy women, spiritual women, saved women, gracious women, wise women, godly women. Uh, and they were they were the purveyors of grace into our world. John the Baptist was the forerunner, and Christ is the the Yahweh, visible Yahweh that Malachi said would come. He would go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will say, "Prepare ye the way for the Lord." And here comes the Lord. These two brothers uh, growing up together and and uh, spending time together. Uh, but God, is, for some reason, Marsha, shrouded that data from us. Yeah, it's just amazing. It is amazing, isn't it? I'm so glad that you've discussed this a bit with me. I appreciate it so much. Can I ask you a question before you go? Certainly. Um, what would, what, how do you think? Uh, I'm not being, I'm not trying to be nosy, but yes. what makes you think the way that you do relative to those kinds of what we would call elliptical, this is an elliptical dialogue. It's about data that's not spoken about in the text, but it's certainly worthy of that conversation. Uh, what yes. what drives you to think like that? Well, uh, I think that way because um, it appears that Adam was living on the earth when Noah was living on the earth. They were still alive at the same time through the genealogy, and you plot when someone was born and then when someone was born. But it's not discussed much. So I was thinking that, you know, Mary was with Elizabeth when she was pregnant. Right. You and know what's... then left before um, John the Baptist was born. Right. I, uh... And it's just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I appreciate the call. I, I remember years ago when I first became a believer, uh, all these kind of conversations I was a part of. And so I love the genealogies. Um, I just got through doing a series on Adam here recently, which will be on the air in probably about a month. Be very controversial because I'm saying things that people have not taught and then have not thought about as well. But when you go to Genesis 5, you recognize that Adam lived to be 930 years old Mm -hmm. and that um, if, if if the structure of the genealogical uh, pattern that you are following because there are a couple of them. There are a couple, two or three of them. Okay, so this one is called a short or a short lineage pattern where they do direct connection of the um, 
of the patriarchal uh, numbers that are in Genesis chapter five. So you just you take Adam and then you take others, Jared, Methuselah, and then you add them up and you come to discover that uh, right on the brink of um, the catastrophe of the world, Noah is born because he's about to lead us into the new world. And all of that is rich contemplation of thought in terms of how God's timing is um, between judgments. One of the things I talked about on Sunday was that our God is so long suffering with us, so absolutely long suffering with us, but there is a time when he intervenes in judgment and that Noah would have been what I call the final millennial patriarch. He was, he was the final millennial patriarch that saw both the old world and the new. Yes. And that's an amazing thing because Can I af- ask one more question if you have a chance. Sure. Um, something we don't hear about, and I've just been waiting since a child, wondering about um, what is the white stone? Mm-hmm. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, yes. Right. There are a couple, two or three interpretations there. Um, and I would say that first and foremost, in all humility, the text would tell us it's a name that we have that no man knows, right? Yeah. That's that's what Christ says. So this is part of what we call the mystery motif. I love teaching mystery because the Bible is full of mysteries and God requires us to be humble enough to ask his spirit to help us to properly interpret scripture because the gospel has to be comprehended or else God is not honored. So in this one here. The white stone there has to do with privileges given to the believer who are overcomers. The the Greek term uh, Nikeos, from which we get our word for Nike, means that we have overcome by trusting Christ. Even if we were martyred, what he does is he raises us from the dead and he seats us at his own right hand. And one of the cultural Uh, practices of that day in Sardis was that when a person became a citizen of the city and particularly a uh, an authority in that city a white stone was given them and the white stone means that those who are overcomers in Christ by loving not their life unto the death when they get to glory a white stone is given to you meaning that you have permanent residency with God permanent eternal status you are a princess right along with princes God himself being the royal king, the Lord Jesus being the royal son, the church being the royal bride. And within that stone are revelations of our identity in Christ that will only fully be revealed, Marsha, when we get there. So you've heard yeah. the ter- you've heard the term, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature, right? And that's what we are right now, born again in seed form. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we're like a seed. It's going to go into the ground and then it's going to burst out into this matchless, infinite, glorious uh, workmanship of God. The difference between what we are now in our physical bodies and what we shall be in the resurrection is incomparable. The comparison between where we are now in, in seed form cannot even be articulated or expressed in any kind of full measure in terms of what we shall be. But one of the things we're doing in our Friday study is talking about the very things you and I are talking about Ooh. now, for which I'm excited because Ooh. we have an inheritance in Christ that Paul said he's praying that we would that we would know that we would that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened that we might know the riches of Christ in the saints and one of them is what you and I are talking about now mm-hmm. that white stone 
a new name written on there that no one knows but him to whom it will be given. And that's only one of a multitude of blessings that are coming your way and my way when we live by faith, walk by faith, and die in faith. And that's why we really do want to keep our eyes on the prize because there's no greater blessing than that which will occur when Christ comes again. Thank you so much. Bless you. Have a great day and, and Merry Christmas. Also, Merry Christmas. I've got two lines open, one triple eight three six seven. Uh, can I go to six? I've got one line open, no, two. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. That was a fun call. I love those kind of questions. Uh let me go to line two and talk with Brother James from the Bay. Brother James, are you there? Yes, sir. How you doing, my brother? I'm good. What's your question, comment, or observation today? Uh Comment observation. I noticed how you opened up and you uh, mentioned how you figured, how you thought, how you said the Trump was, in a, uh, you know, it seems to be a lot of trouble, like the iceberg is melting or what have you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm not surprised. I, I mean, I don't know if what he's done is what they what, what he said he is, or whether he was knowingly uh, doing what he done and. You have, you know, the the left is on the attack, and like you say, on the right, defending. Yeah. I'm just not all against the different things that I'm reading. If I, from a neutral point of view, I'm just not sure. Is this propaganda? Is this what it's done? Because I can't see him being any more guilty than anybody else that's being in that chair, except for the fact that he's being exposed. For me, is for he is because he's a political outsider. He's not part of the establishment, and so I think there's a. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of payback going on out there. It's almost like I don't know who to believe. I mean, as far as you know, the news outlets from the mainstream media, and I know you. I mean, you, you look at your news from a from a balanced point of view as well. I just yeah, I, I just don't know that what he has done is. Is, is as egregious as the media is making out to be. Okay, and so let's. So, no, go ahead. Say your last point. No, if, if so, is it any more egregious than what Hillary was accused of doing, and the uh, the idea of the, uh, of the deep state as it's been, uh, you know, as it's been fired. Sure. So, um, so, yeah. That larger that larger query that you gave concerning the deep state is a whole nother conversation as well. Uh, and you and I would certainly know that Hillary Clinton, as well as Bill Clinton, having been in the establishment as many decades as they have and have gone from being broke to being massive millionaires, along with the um, along with the Obamas and everybody else, along with the. Um, with the Bushes and along with, um, uh, you know, all of the previous presidents who have played a role in shaping politics in America, uh, going all the way back to Nixon. Here's the way I, I, I will put it in a kind of nutshell uh, and then share with you why I think that we have to be a little bit more um, uh, analytical about what's happening with Trump. Uh, the first and foremost is that uh, cynicism would allow us to um, uh, kind of lean back and go, you know, th- the dirt is always flying against any president. It always is. Sometimes it sticks. Sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time it doesn't, meaning that they are not impeached. Well, you have been living right along with myself for at least two impeachments, uh, Richard Nixon and then um, uh, Bill Clinton. 
Uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, but he didn't leave office. Richard Nixon was impeached and he left office. What does that mean? Just like the Watergate investigation with Richard Nixon uh, took a long time to open up and everybody was lying, even Richard Nixon threw his teeth until eventually it was just undeniable because they had the evidence. He forgot to cut the recorder off. That's called a human idiosyncrasy, which God often uses when he says whatsoever is spoken in the dark will be made manifest in the light. In this particular context where you and I are with uh, uh, President Trump, it may very well be that he said some things and done some things in the dark that are easily retrievable given the technology we have today, given the um, uh, special and much more um, uh, critically analytical counsels that we have. And remember this, what often occurs in order for an individual to get away with maybe criminal activity, which is just common parlance. I don't lose any sleep over it. I've I've taught it for years. Uh, when when people become presidents, it's is almost always on the back of criminal activity in the mafia decades and decades and sometimes centuries before that families end up becoming political families. Uh, Having started from criminal dubious backgrounds is just common parlance in this broken world. That doesn't bother me at all. Doesn't bother me that he um, had dealings with Russia back in the day because, you know, around the world, you're going to have those kind of dealings. It doesn't bother me that it um, that it would have poured into the world of politics because money has driven our politics uh, from the beginning. I'm very clear on that. None of that causes me to lose sleep. I never, ever have publicly put my salvation on the context of uh, any part political party. What I am saying now is, is that we want to be watchful to see what some of the turncoats have done uh, that have had private information on Trump that may now be selling it to the media for the saving of their own skin, which is what happens in, in adjudication all the time. You can go to jail for 50 years if you keep your mouth shut you can go to jail for five years if you give us the necessary criterion and data to begin to implicate people that we're going after and so um what I'm hearing in the uh, not so central news media, but the broader news media, is that Donald Trump has uh, has some real concerns with some turncoats that are going on in depositions uh, with the FBI and, uh, and and the State Department as well, which will probably come out more concretely in the next week or two. That's what I meant by that. But he may be sharp enough and have enough power to be able to shut that down. And then we keep it moving business as usual. Listen, I got to take a break. I'm way overdue. Thanks for the call, my brother. Have a Merry Christmas. Two lines open, one 367 I will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 